Well, good morning, everyone. (laughs) It's good to see everybody. And um, why don't we go immediately to the Lord in prayer, and uh, we'll dig into His Word. We we need His help today. Let's let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you that we can come to you in prayer, and we do so now because of what Jesus has done. We get to enter into your presence. We get to um, make our supplications to you. We get to worship you in prayer, and we do that now. Lord, we praise you that you are the sovereign one. Lord, we ask that you would work in your sovereign way even this morning. Help us as we dig into your word, as we look at the nation of Israel during the time of the judges, And we look to see what you might have for us now in this day and age. Help us to understand. Lord, I pray that you would work in our midst, that uh, our hearts would be open to what you have for us. Lord, we want to um, be sensitive to you, and not only sensitive, but we want to be responsive. When your Spirit moves us, may we respond in obedience. Lord, have your way. Have your way in our hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So open, if you would, to the book of Judges. And we are in chapter 10 this morning. And as you're turning there, there are times when you're reading the Bible or when we're having a Bible study or preaching and um, you run across a character that you might be tempted to emulate. Like, for example... If we're reading through and we're talking about David and Goliath, right, it's very tempting for us to think that we need to be like David, right? And, and David had great faith and great courage and he stood up for the Lord and we might be tempted to read that passage about him with the, with the stone and the sling and, and killing the giant. We might come away tempted to think we need to be more like David in that passage and David's the hero of that passage. And, and of course, David is not the hero of that passage. David is the instrument that the hero of the passage, who is God, uses in that story but sometimes when we read we're kind of tempted to emulate the hero the the main character well folks that is not today that day is not today we're going to be reading about jephthah today and jephthah is an interesting and dark character in the old testament and uh, i have wrestled with jephthah all week long and uh, we'll see what the lord has for us this morning I, i think there's a lot that we can take away from this that's going to be encouraging, that's going to be challenging for us, but it is not to emulate him. I'll I'll tell you that. So we're in Judges chapter 10, and we've been doing this series in the book of Judges, and and we've been uh, covering large chunks at a time, trying to do, for the most part, a judge at a time, and, and see if we can understand what the Lord was doing through that judge and what the Lord was doing in the nation of Israel and really what he was doing in the whole world and the storyline of the Bible at that time. And so we find ourselves today uh, discussing mainly the uh, the judge named Jephthah. Uh, but before we get to him, you'll notice in the beginning of chapter 10 that he is bracketed on the front end by by two men, Tola and Jair. And we don't know a whole lot about them except the size of families and things like that. Um, uh, Jair was a Gileadite. He had uh, he had 30 sons, and these sons rode on donkeys. And that has some significance that probably is a little bit lost on us. But probably it had something to do with either, either their, their royal nature, 
they, they were kind of like princes, and therefore they rode on donkeys. Or, or possibly it could be that uh, this, this showed their, their military prowess, because if you want to ride in the mountains, it would be better to be on a, on a donkey or a mule than it would to be on a horse, just because they're more sure-footed, their feet are harder and, and whatnot. And I can talk about mules for a while because my parents love mules, but that's, that's for another time. So Tola and Jair, we don't know a whole lot about them, but they're, they're on the front end. And then we have this long story about Jephthah. And on the end of the Jephthah story, then we come to these three men who are referred to at the end of chapter 12. And they are Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. And there'll be a quiz on that later, how to pronounce those, how to spell those, and where they're from. And again, we don't have a whole lot of information about them, except uh, that Ibzan had 30 sons and then he had at least 30 daughters. So families were rather large at this time, which, which indicates that there would, be, uh, there would be a lot of polygamy going on. They were trying to have large families. It was an um, uh, interesting, interesting time in the nation of Israel, uh, what they were doing there. Uh, but I would also have you notice, I, I think we're seeing a trend in the book of Judges that's, that's kind of going along. If you look at the guys who appeared first, Tola and Jair, you look at their, uh, their time as judge, and in chapter 10, verse 2, we see that, um, that um, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo. Yeah. I, I didn't name him, but it is fun to read. He judged Israel 23 years. Good long time, 23 years, right? And then you have Jair, the Gileadite, and he judged Israel for 22 years. Okay, so 23, 22, that's pretty significant reign. That's a pretty uh, long duration, uh, time to serve as judge. And then you go to the end of the story. You go to uh, chapter 12, and you'll see that Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon, they ruled for 7, 10, and 8 years. And so it's much shorter. And then Jephthah's reign is going to be 6 years. And so you're starting to see, I think maybe we're seeing a decline in the stability of the nation, that the reigns used to be longer, and and they're getting shorter and shorter as time goes on. And uh, we're going to kind of throws a wrench into it with Samson coming up. But but what you can see, I think, from from looking at those is that we're starting to see a decline in the stability of the nation. And we've seen other declines in the nation. We've seen religious decline. We've seen moral decline and uh, military decline at various times. And and I think that's carried out by how long these these men are serving as judge. But but uh, those five men just kind of bracket Jephthah, and Jephthah is where we're going to be spending a good amount of our time uh, this morning. But uh, I said there's there's been there's been kind of a decline, I believe, in, in the nation of Israel and what they're doing and what they're like and what they stand for, and that carries on uh, in keeping with uh, with what we see there in the beginning of chapter 10, where we see um, the nation of Israel once again in a period of crisis that's due to their apostasy. Once again, this has been the theme, right? We've seen this rolling theme. And right now they have just entered into this period of of apostasy. And now they enter into a period of crisis as a result of that. And so if you'll you'll turn with me and look at uh, at chapter 10 and verse 6, we'll see wholesale apostasy. All right, listen to this from from verse 6. It says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. In other passages, in other accounts of their apostasy, it will say quite simply, and the people again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals or something like that. And here we have an extensive listing of what all was involved in their apostasy. They didn't just go a little bit into apostasy. 
they went whole hog into apostasy. And, uh, and, and it's a list of nations all around them. If you pull out your map sometime, my high school students for, for Sunday school are always teasing me because nearly every lesson I refer to the map and there should be a map in your head. And if there's not, you've got one in the back of your Bible. And if you don't have one in the back of your Bible, you need to find a Bible that has a good map in the back because that's how I'm able to think about this. If you, if you list through the different places of the, of the, the gods they were serving, the gods of, of the different nations that they were serving, it's pretty much everybody surrounding them. And so they've gone in whole hog into apostasy. And, and of course, as we've seen before, uh, that brings a crushing invasion, a crushing invasion. And so God's wrath and God's judgment begins to come upon them. And we see in verse 7 and 8 and 9 there, we see, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. So again, referring to that map that's in your head, Gilead is the land that's to the east of the Jordan River. And the Ammonites have been pressing into the land of Gilead. It's, it's the land of, of Israel that is, that is east of the Jordan, but it still belongs to Israel. If you remember the story of Judges and, and them conquering the land, this is the land that was given to, to, those, uh, to those tribes. The, the Gileadites, they, they were part of that, the tribe of Manasseh. And this group, that's the group that settled not west of the Jordan, but to the east of the Jordan. right? And so you have the Ammonites pressing into that part. And they're, they're attacking from the eastern side, coming at the people of Israel from that side. And then you also have the Philistines, right? The Philistines lived along the Mediterranean, kind of in the area of Gaza, the Gaza Strip that we have nowadays from there and north. And, uh, and so they lived in that area. They were people that, have, that should have been driven out, but they weren't. And so they are pushing in from the west. And so they're attacking from the west. And if you can picture Israel, it's kind of a tall, skinny sort of nation. And they've got armies coming in and pressing them from each side. Right? And so they're severely distressed. They're, and they, they're, they're in that capacity for 18 years they're pressed like that. So they're, they're kind of being cut in two. You could see how uh, the enemy army is pushing, armies are pushing right into the heartland of the people. And so it's bad news for the nation of Israel. And uh, this isn't just one army coming from one side, but they've got war on two fronts. And it's at their weakest point. And so things are bad. This is a crushing invasion. And so, as we have seen in other stories in the book of Judges, we see that there's a repentance. But this time, there's, there's a very practical repentance, a practical repentance. This, the pain and the turmoil of, of these invaders and the situation that's, that's brought about because of that is, uh, it drives them to their knees, as it were, drives them back to the Lord, which is what it's designed to do. And so, uh, we see in uh, chapter 10 and verse 10, we see this, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and has served the Baals. And so they, they, re, they return and cry out to God in the midst of this suffering. And so in other situations with the other judges, we've looked and we've seen that when they cry out to the Lord, the Lord responds and sends a deliverer. Except this time. Keep reading in the passage there in chapter 10. So they've cried out, we've sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and have served the Baals, period. 
And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians, from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Don't you remember? Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. So they cry out to the Lord as they've done before. They expect that the Lord is going to respond with a deliverer as has happened before. And the Lord pulls him up short. Pulls him up short. This time, instead of sending his own deliverer and, and all of that, uh, this time he tells them to go and seek refuge in those other gods that they've gone after. It's a little bit scary if you pause right there and think about that. Sometimes a little silence from God, sometimes a no answer from God is just what is needed to bring us back to himself. And that's what he gives them here. They cry out, we've sinned against you. And God says, go tell that to your other gods that you've gone after. That's sobering. That should be sobering. It's sobering to me and it's sobering to them. And look, look how they continue. Verse 15, chapter 10. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. So that, that no answer from God opened their eyes a little bit awakened them to the way they had been treating God. They had been acting with presumption towards God. And this awakens them to that fact that they have sinned much more deeply than they thought. And not, not only does this require or, or call for them to, to admit their sin before God and to cry out to God, but also to make some significant changes, they had to repent. And they had to turn away from these other gods. Turn away from those other gods and turn towards God himself. They begin to serve their God. They begin to serve their Savior again. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. And we see in the next chapter that he will send another judge when he sends power from obscurity. Power from obscurity. And this takes us on into chapter 11 where we meet Jephthah. Jephthah, their mighty leader. Jephthah, their, their next judge. But first of all, Jephthah is exiled. Jephthah is exiled. We meet him the first part. We learn that he's, a, he's a, a son of a Gileadite, but his mom was a prostitute. And so as he was growing up in that household, his family drove him off and said, you're not going to have an inheritance with us. You're the, you're the son of another woman, so beat it. And so they send him off, and he goes and lives in the town of, of Tob. And, uh, and while he's there, that's where he grows up and he gathers around himself worthless fellows, brigands, and he becomes a bandit and uh, wanders the country and kind of enters into that line of work and uh, becomes pretty mighty at it, pretty powerful at it. So his family has driven him out because of who his mom is, because of his relationship uh, with, with, uh, with the dad and, and it's, a, it's an improper relationship. And so the, the sons drive him away, the brothers drive him away, and he's exiled. But then... 
And we see that as the story continues, next Jephthah gets recruited. He gets recruited. We see this in chapter 11, uh, starting at verse 4. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight with the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? So Gilead under, or, uh, Jephthah understands the situation very well when the, the elders of Gilead come to him and they, 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 want, uh, they want to recruit him because now he's useful. Before he didn't fit in, before he was, he was kind of a blight on, uh, on, on the nation or on the family at least. He was a danger. He was a threat to the inheritance. But now they need him, and so they decide that they're going to bring him in, and they go and try and recruit him. Well, Jephthah, he's no fool, and uh, he points out to him, look, you drove me out. You didn't, you didn't want me around when times were peaceful, and uh, when, it, when, it had any, when it could have possibly been something good for me, you drove me out. But now, now that you need me, now that you're in distress, you're coming and asking me and trying to recruit me. And so they, they, uh, they do recruit him, and he, he does agree uh, to come to them. And it's impressive if, if you look more closely at that negotiation because they start off offering him one sort of thing, offered to be like the military head, and he comes away with a much greater title. Like he comes away with a lot more authority that he, he will be their leader, not, not just their military head, but he's going to be their leader. And, uh, and so he ends up gaining some sort of authority over the entire clan of the Gileadites uh, because of this, this negotiation. So he's, he's an interesting character, but he goes from being an outcast, and now he's going to be their leader. He's going to be the one who leads them in battle against the enemy who has invaded. And so he gets recruited, and he agrees to do this, right? Well, next we have Jephthah rebuffed. Jephthah rebuffed. So what happens is, once Jephthah is made the judge, once he's put in charge, he goes and, and he sends messengers to the king of the Ammonites, and he says, hey, why are you invading us? You have no reason to invade us. And he enters into negotiation with the king of the Ammonites. And there's quite a back and forth discussion that goes on there, and there's a lot of history that's discussed. It's very interesting. And, uh, and what happens is they end up arguing about the history of the nation of Israel, and the king of the Ammonites says, oh, you, you Israelites, you know, hundreds of years ago you moved into our territory and, and stole our land from us, and we're just taking it back. And, uh, and Jephthah says, no, actually, we never moved into your land. You didn't have anything to do with it. We took the land from the Amorites, not the Ammonites, different group, Different, different group of people. Ammonites had nothing to do with it. The land that we live in now, the land of Gilead, used to be the land of the Amorites. This has nothing to do with you. And even if it did have something to do with you, why are you coming to us hundreds of years later? And why are you trying to make, make up for it now? And so he's trying to talk them out of it. Of course, it doesn't work. And so there ends up being a pitched battle. They, they end up going to war with one another. And, uh, and, and that's how the story continues. So he tried to talk his way out of it. Didn't really work out. Uh, but war ensues. And so even though, uh, even with Jephthah's uh, martial prowess and the blessing of the Lord, um, we're going to see that he's able to snatch defeat from victory. He's able to snatch defeat from victory. You see, the Lord was with him. 
It says, it says the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he traveled around and went to these different groups, and he was able to marshal his troops. He was able to arrange, get together an army large enough to fight against the Ammonites to make a legitimate claim, legitimate battle, and, and he does all that. The Spirit of the Lord is with him, but we see that even though he's, he's powerful in battle, nevertheless, he's able to snatch defeat from victory. Well, first of all, let's look at that military victory in that section there. Look at uh, chapter 11, and we're going to start reading we're going to read uh, verse 29. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. He passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And skip down to 32. And it says there, So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Minith, 20 cities. And as far as Abel Karamin, uh, with a great blow, so the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. And so he goes to battle with them, he rallies the troops, goes in and, and defeats them, defeats the Ammonites, right? It seems like a good thing. This is a, this is a good first contact. This is a good first step in what they're going to do in their, in their being delivered, right? And so we have a great military victory. It's unmitigated. They're, this is a good, good situation. They just rout the people. They take, they take the, the neighboring lands, the borderlands. This is a good thing. The king of the Ammonites is, uh, is on his heels and not going to bother them anymore. So Israel has victory. But just like the, so many other stories in the book of Judges, so many other accounts of the different judges, the story doesn't end there. It keeps going. And this is where it gets tragic. So we move from military defeat, or excuse me, military victory to family defeat. Now you noticed, because you're smart, that I skipped right over 11, 30, and 31, right? Skipped right over. Let's go back and read that right now. We're in chapter 11. So this is while he's marshalling his troops, right? While he's, uh, he's gathering his army, getting ready to go and, and do battle. And you have verse 30 happen. Verse 30 and 31. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will... Offer it up for a burnt offering. Everything else seemed to be going so well. He was, he was getting his army together. The Spirit of the Lord was with him. He was, he was moving that direction. He was moving towards victory. And yet he makes this, uh, he makes this vow in the midst of that. Well, we, we see how it continues. Look down at verse 34. We see the conclusion starting verse 34 and through the end of the chapter. Then Jephthah came to... So this is after the battle, after the victory. Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out from your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, 
who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. We see about Jephthah's character that he's a compulsive negotiator. At every step of the way, he negotiates. He's always trying to talk his way out of something or talk his way into a better deal. And while he's with the Lord, and the Spirit of the Lord is with him, and he's gathering his army, rather than just moving forward in the Spirit of the Lord and going to battle, instead he tries to negotiate with God, to negotiate a victory beforehand. And he makes this vow, whatever comes out of my house, I will offer it up as a burnt offering. He's a compulsive negotiator, and that's what he does. And, and as, as people try and interpret Jephthah, you're trying to understand who this guy is, and you're trying to understand uh, what he meant by it. Some, they, uh, some people see this as just a horrifically rash vow that he made when he was under stress, when he was under pressure, when he was under the excitement of heading to battle. This is some rash vow that he made. Even if that is the case, we're still left to deal with the, what he's going to do with it afterwards. When he gets home from battle and his daughter runs out to meet him, he has a choice. Will he break his vow and not commit murder and child sacrifice? Or will he keep his vow very honorable and commit murder and child sacrifice? It's difficult. It's difficult to determine which he should do. Well, some people, uh, they try to soften this by saying, well, actually, he, he didn't intend to offer her up as, a, as a, a burnt offering, and he didn't actually, he actually just set her apart as a, as a perpetual maiden in service to Yahweh, in service to the king, always set apart, sort of like in a convent kind of idea. And this group of her friends who, who went with her to mourn on the mountains, they were sort of like nuns, and they, they became set apart for the Lord. The problem is what happens, what, what is said in verse 39, 1139. says, at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. He vowed to offer her up as a whole burnt offering. And that's what he did. The clues from the text tell us that this story is much worse than any of this that we've been thinking about. If we remember the, uh, the depths of the apostasy that people had fallen into, you see whom they served. They served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. Some of those gods were known by the fact that the best way to worship them, the most effective way to worship them, the most effective way to garner the pleasure and the, the approval of this God was to offer your child as a sacrifice. And so Jephthah had this precedent in his mind. If you really want God to do what you want him to do, offer your child up as a sacrifice. And that's the step that he takes. Jephthah is a very dark, very dark character. That practice, of course, of offering your child, of killing your child, of course it's forbidden. Of course it's There's nothing in the Bible that would encourage you to do such a thing. It's expressly forbidden in Leviticus 18.21. It says, don't do such a thing. The other nations do that. Other gods are worshipped that way. But you shall not do that and you shall not worship a god that way. 
by no means will God accept worship in such a way. And in Second Kings chapter 16, uh, talking about King Ahaz, and it says he did not do what was right. It says, but he even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And so there's a precedent set. There's a precedent in the land, in the neighboring lands, these other gods that were worshipped around them. And because the nation of Israel had not driven those nations out, had not done away with, with that type of worship, now it has become their own. It's entered into their own way of worship. And somehow in Jephthah's mind, in the heat of the moment, he thinks that's an appropriate way to worship God. That's an appropriate way to twist God's arm, to get God on your side, to do what you want him to do. This is, this is exceedingly dark. It seems that he knowingly made this vow to sacrifice whatever came out of his house, even if it was his daughter. It's interesting, if you look at his response... When she comes out, verse 35, he says, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You've become the cause of great trouble to me. He's still the center of what's going on. He's, 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 he's sorrowful and he's sad to have to do this. It's a big disruption to him. It's a big pain for him. Well, whatever Jephthah's motive might have been, he kills his own daughter, his only child, and his only way of passing on his name, by the way. And this uh, is a tragic defeat for Jephthah's daughter, for the mother, for Jephthah himself, and for the nation of Israel to be led by such a man. So you have his defeat as a family. Military victory, family defeat, national defeat. The story goes on, and uh, just like happened before, as with what happened with Gideon, Gideon came back from battle, and who should appear all ready for battle now that it's too late? The Ephraimites, and they show up and they get mad at, at, uh, at Gideon, remember, for, for going into battle without them, and how dare you? We were all ready, and we could have helped you. Well, Gideon talks his way out of that, but the same exact thing happens with Jephthah. After the battle's over, the Ephraimites show up and they're, they're, they're all uh, ready to go, except that the battle's all over, so they get mad at Jephthah. Why'd you go to battle without us? Man, we could have helped you out. We'd have been right there. Well, Jephthah's not able to talk his way out of it. It turns into, uh, into battle between them, and they end up killing 42,000 of their fellow countrymen. There's war going on inside. It's not bad enough that they're being oppressed by the Philistines from the west and by the Ammonites from the east. Now they're killing each other. And so you have a national defeat as well. 42,000 Ephraimites die. And so in the end, Jephthah had only judged Israel for six years. He left behind no children and no legacy. His story is mixed at very best. So that's Jephthah. I said, I said when we started this that sometimes you're tempted to want to follow the pattern left by the people you read about in the Bible, and today is not that day. What a dark character. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, we see the downward spiral of the nation of Israel throughout the book of Judges, right? We see what's happening. We see that they're deteriorating very quickly. But I have a couple of... Uh, a couple of points of application kind of to draw this to a close to help us make something of this story of Jephthah, something we can take home and not be miserable about this. First of all, 
the obvious thing to learn from Jephthah is guard your tongue. Guard your tongue. James 3, I flip there real quick. James 3, verses 5 through 10, talk about the tongue. And this is not the main, this is not the main point of the story about Jephthah, nor is it the main point this morning, but it's too obvious to skip. James chapter 3, talking about the tongue. The tongue is a small member, starting in verse 5, is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. A very simple and easy application, not easy to do, easy to remember, is guard your tongue. The Jephthah story would be so much less tragic if he had kept his yap shut. That's the first point. Second point is a little bit more involved. The more you read about Jephthah and the more times you read about Jephthah, the more bad you find out about him. He doesn't get better in your estimation. He gets worse in your estimation the more you know about the guy. You find out more bad rather than good. We only see his faith in the briefest of glimpses if at all. Probably the highlight of his faith faith was when he first became installed as judge at Mizpah. He went and said his words before the Lord to become the judge of the people. That was probably the highlight of his faith. And then later on in, in discussion with the king of the Ammonites, he says some true things about God in his conversation with him. But the only other recorded time we have him talking to the Lord was in making this vow about his daughter. I would write Jephthah off as a godless, tragic anti-hero, except for this verse. This is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Maybe you know it. The hall of faith says this, the writer to the Hebrews says this in verse 32, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, who through faith conquered kingdoms, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. What an amazing thing to find Jephthah in Hebrews chapter 11. Astounding. What a sign of God's grace and mercy that he would choose to work through such a man, that he would use such a man as Jephthah with every flaw to deliver the nation of Israel and then to laud his faith. The story of Jephthah has little encouragement to offer. Certainly nothing for us to emulate in our own lives. It doesn't have really anything to offer except the grace of God himself. Only the grace of God made Jephthah worth anything. Made Jephthah useful to the people. Memorable. Only the grace of God would include Jephthah in Hebrews chapter 11. The only thing laudable about this man is God himself. 
And that's encouraging to me because there's not a lot laudable about me. And if you think about yourself, you know all your own flaws. And you know you, you don't have much to offer either. You don't have much to offer your family, your friends, or this world. Nothing that's lasting, nothing that's perfect, nothing that's unflawed or unstained, except the work of God himself. That's where our hope is. That's where your hope is. That's where your legacy is. That's where your impact is, the work of God himself in your life. The fact that God would would play up the faith of such a man as Jephthah, that he would acknowledge faith in this man is encouraging to me because I've not done the same things that Jephthah has done, but I'm not entirely unlike him. And if you look at yourself, you find that you're not entirely unlike him either. The only thing good about Jephthah, the only thing powerful, the only thing he has to offer us is the grace of God. And that brings us to our third point of application. When we look at the sacrifice of Jephthah's daughter, it's such a picture of Jesus himself. I I didn't, I frankly didn't want to see it because it's so tragic. It's so tragic when you think about this girl. She's so submissive as to be almost unbelievable. She agrees to it. Just let me have a couple months with my friends, go on a camping trip, lament the fact that I'll never have children, and then do to me as, as you vowed. She comes back. She didn't escape. She came back and gave herself, and he took her life. She gave up her life for her father's sake. Now, Jesus, of course, was also submissive to his father. It was the father's plan from before the foundation of the world that the son would be born as a man, become like us, but live without sin and intentionally go to the cross, die a horrific death, bearing the wrath and judgment of God so that you wouldn't have to. He did that to purchase us, to purchase a people for his own possession. And that's you and that's me. The picture here, when, when we read it in Jephthah's account, is tragic and painful. And sometimes we breeze through the account of Jesus offering himself for us like it's no big deal. He gave himself for you, specifically for the purpose of dying as a sacrifice, is why he came to this earth. But whereas Jephthah's daughter died to fulfill the rash and pagan vow her father had made in order to win a military victory, Jesus died to fulfill the Father's merciful plan for you and for me to win eternal salvation for his people. He died on that cross and bore the awful wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to. The death of Jephthah's daughter fills us with sadness and confusion. But the death of Jesus fills us with hope and possibility. And this is where I want to leave it for us this morning. That's the sacrifice Jesus made for us. He offers you forgiveness in Christ. He offers you to have your own guilt placed upon him so that you could be forgiven, 
so that you could be made right with Him. He took that wrath that you deserve because you are a little bit like Jephthah. He took it upon Himself and He bore the wrath of God, the punishment of God for your sin, for my sin. And He offers you in exchange forgiveness. He offers you to be brought into right relationship with Him. He offers you new life. And that's, that's the offer I want to leave us with this morning. Think about that. Even if you're a believer, even if you've known Jesus 50 years, there is, there is wonder in that. There is wonder in the grace of God that He would offer you such a gift. My prayer for us is that we would grab the gospel and look at it from every angle in our lives. The gospel is not just something that brought us into the kingdom of God once upon a time. It's, it's our relationship with God. Grab the gospel and look at it and examine it from all different angles. Think about your relationships in light of the gospel, in the light of that mercy of God for you, and show mercy to others. Tell them about God's mercy. Folks, let's think about the fact that Jesus himself gave himself up to be a sacrifice for us, willingly, willingly. He didn't do it to gain some military victory. He did it for God's glory and for our good. What a, what a great and incredible gift that he offers you. Don't, don't leave here today if you don't know him without accepting that gift. Talk to me, talk to Pastor Woody, talk to somebody. Accept that gift. It, it's too good to be true, except that it's true. That's my prayer for you. Let's go to the Lord together. Lord Jephthah is a dark character. Hard to read, hard to think about, hard to stomach. And yet there is gold in there about your grace and your goodness. Lord, I praise you for the grace of God at work in my life. I praise you for your grace at work in the lives of these dear ones. Lord, that you would choose to use us for any good purpose is purely grace. That you would choose to use us as anything other than target practice is purely grace. And I praise you for that. Lord, I, I want to leave here this morning and I want us to leave here this morning deeply struck by your goodness, by your mercy, by your grace that you would care to have relationship with me, that you would care to make it so that I could be your own son at very great expense to yourself. That Jesus giving himself up was not in vain, but it was for me and it was for your glory. Father, we praise you. We rejoice that we can know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.